This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 302nd episode, we have what is being called the first 3D preserved embryonic skull of a sauropod ever described. So cute. Yeah, it is very cute. And we have dinosaur of the day, Monoclonius. But before we get into all of that, real quickly, we want to thank some of our patrons. And this week, we'd like to thank JC, the Tolbert family, Stego Sophie, Nicholas, Rhinosaurus, Bradley, Ayumi, Robert, Stefan, and Mayu. Yeah, thank you so much. We appreciate all of your support. It's really awesome seeing our community grow. As usual, Garrett and I have been enjoying our chats on Discord, and of course we offer many other rewards, so if you want to join, then check out our page at patreon.com slash inodino. Jumping into the news, as promised, up first we have that new baby sauropod skull. It was written by Martin Kundrat and others and published in Current Biology. It's available online, which was a little surprising to me because Current Biology, I don't think usually is. I don't think it's open access. They say like online available or something where it would normally say open access. So I guess you can read it hopefully forever <laughs> online. But in the paper, they describe, like I said, the first 3D preserved embryonic skull of a sauropod as they describe it. And it is just a skull which is about the size of a grape for perspective. That is small. Yeah. And there's no body bones whatsoever, No, not even a single neck vertebra or anything. So it's just a skull. It's also not exactly in perfect shape. It's missing a little bit of the right side, but fortunately it doesn't seem to be distorted and it has pretty much all the bones. And when they threw it into the European synchrotron, which is basically the world's most powerful X-ray, they got crazy detail out of it, including like the blood vessel passageways in the snout and little tiny teeth and all sorts of stuff like that. Wow. Even though its mouth is closed, so you couldn't see its teeth normally. And just a reminder, the European synchrotron is crazy powerful. It's called a synchrotron because it accelerates the x-rays in a circle so they can speed up faster and faster, get more and more powerful. And it's about a hundred billion times more powerful than a medical x-ray that you would get. But I think it recently got upgraded, at least it was scheduled to, to 10 trillion times more powerful <laughs> than a medical x-ray. So it should be able to easily see through rock of just about any sort, as long as there isn't metal in it, because metal always blocks it and kind of scatters it. Metal beats rock? Metal beats x-ray, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this baby dinosaur is very cute. It has proportionally really big and cute eyes. 
Interestingly, its nasal openings appear to be sort of in front of the eyes and up a little bit, a bit like the Brachiosaurus blowhole type look <laughs> that they have, you know, sort of on the forehead kind of placement. I personally would like to think that it was covered in fluff, like a little downy chick, but the paleo art doesn't have any sort of fluff on it. They just presented it as little tiny scales all over it. Still cute. It's, it's kind of cute, yeah. <laughs> its eyes are definitely cute. Like I mentioned, they didn't find any of the body, just the head, but that's apparently not atypical. There have been other sauropod embryos found like that before where it's just the skull. Maybe it's one of the first parts that calcifies so that it preserves better. I'm not sure. Unfortunately, it doesn't have a nice name or a nice nickname because it's not from Australia. <laughs> it's named MCF-PVPH-874, but I'm just going to refer to it as the baby sauropod because... That's not fun to say. <laughs> After doing the synchrotron, they could see a couple of tiny teeth in the premaxilla. In other words, the front of the snout. They were about 0.1 millimeters wide by 0.5 millimeters long <laughs> at the largest. And beard hair, <laughs> for comparison, is also about 0.1 millimeters in diameter and grows at about 0.5 millimeters a day. So if you shaved after one day of not shaving, this baby sauropod's teeth are almost exactly the same size as that one day worth of stubble growth. It's a very interesting comparison. <laughs> I was trying to figure out how, because regular human hair is less than a tenth of a millimeter or 100 microns, it's usually like 50 to 60 microns. But turns out beard hair is a little bit quicker, but it grows at the same length as regular human hair. And half an inch a month is the same as half a millimeter a day. So yeah, really tiny. I don't think there's any chance you would find this tooth if it wasn't lodged in a skull and you knew exactly where to look for it. Mm -hmm. Think how fast it would have grown though. Yeah, that's very true. I don't think the teeth were fully formed yet. They also found a quote unquote partly calcified brain case, which is really handy because then they could compare the way the brain had developed to what they would expect at different ages for saurian brain cases. So you can kind of tell how old it is by looking at what its brain looked like. In this case, elements of the brain look like a 47 to 50 day old alligator egg is what they used for comparison, or I should say alligator embryo. And for reference, an alligator takes about 65 days to hatch. So when you compare that 48 and a half days out of 65 days, it's about 75% of the way through its growth time, but probably not 75% of the size that it would have been when it hatched because animals grow exponentially. So it's probably still quite a bit smaller than 75% of its total size at hatching. So maybe even cuter than a hatchling sauropod. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> they call it a titanosaur, but they're not sure what species it might be. It looks quite a bit different than titanosaur adult skulls that we have. And I'm going to get into that in a little bit. So the biggest difference is that it's monocerotic, which literally means one horn in Greek. And it actually has a horn sticking straight out of the snout, kind of like a short swordfish bill. Hmm. So if you imagine that snout ending in a point and then like literally sticking straight out as a horn, it's really weird looking. Do you think it's an embryonic feature? It might be. So that's kind of what they were guessing because we haven't seen this anywhere else ever. <laughs> so the presumption is that it was just in these very small sauropods. 
but they can't be sure because we don't know what species it is. Mm -hmm. So it's possible that adults would have had this horn too. I remember somebody speculating once that we found so few adult sauropod skulls. We tend to find femurs and hips and things like that, that maybe sauropods just had crazy heads in these different families and we have no idea because we never find them. Yeah, could be. <laughs> so maybe I like to think that maybe this grew up with a horn. There's There isn't really any reason to think it didn't other than that we don't see it in the adult sauropods that we have, but there's no way to know if we've seen the sauropod as an adult before. One way that it might be limited to just the baby sauropod is that this weird horn might be analogous to an egg tooth that you see on modern birds, crocodiles, and other hard-shelled egg animals. So lots of animals, when they grow in hard-shelled eggs, in order to break out of eggs, because eggs are pretty hard to break even for adults by design, mm -hmm. <laughs> they're easier to break from the inside out than they are from the outside in based on the way that they grow. But for a not even hatched yet embryo <laughs> trying to get out of an egg, it's still very difficult. So a lot of them will grow these quote unquote egg teeth, which is basically just like a sharp point, like a owl or a punch that they can use to crack the egg and then use that to break their way out. You see them even on snakes have them. Lots of animals have these. That's handy. It is. And sometimes they're made out of keratin and they just form at the end of like, say a turtle's beak. They'll just have a little pointy part and then it disappears shortly after the hatch. But some lizards actually have true teeth as egg teeth. They'll grow an extra tooth <laughs> and use that, which makes sense because if you are growing sharp teeth anyway, you can just grow it a little bit bigger in the right direction and then use it to poke your way out. However, there are some good reasons to think that the horn on this baby might not be just an egg tooth. The biggest reason is probably that the horn on this baby is a lot bigger than typical egg teeth. So if you think about the usefulness of an egg tooth, you just need something sharp enough to break open an eggshell and it only needs to be used once and you don't necessarily wanna put a bunch of resources into growing this egg tooth that you're only gonna use one time because you, you probably wanna drop it off afterwards anyway because it's not gonna be useful for anything else. So they tend to be really small. A lot of times you won't even notice them unless you know what to look for on a baby. Whereas this horn is very noticeable. It's striking, it sticks out. Um, like unicornish? A little bit, except that it's sticking out like in front of the, on like the top lip. Mm. If a unicorn had like a top lip horn sticking out, that's what it's like. So because of that, and the fact that this horn really seems to be pretty well fused to the premaxilla, and it, it seems like structural bone. It doesn't seem like something that would shed quickly after hatching like you'd expect for an egg tooth. So the horn might have had another purpose that was useful for it after it hatched. They didn't give any guesses, but I want to give some random guesses. <laughs> it's possible that they could have used it for self-defense. You know, a little sharp horn on the face might be useful if something tries to bite you and you've got a horn sticking out of your head. Maybe that's helpful. Or maybe it was used as sort of a shovel for digging up food, sort of like alvarosaurs with their little claws that we think were used for termite mounds. Maybe they were using them to break something open. And since we can't rule it out that it might have had it as an adult, it's also possible that it was any of those other normal things that adults have big horns for. So it could be used for species identification so they can tell the difference between different species of sauropods or that it was a big display structure for impressing mates is another possibility. Could it be the basis of a beak? Maybe, but it extends pretty far past where the beak would be. Mm. So 
it does, it's not really the same structure that, and it doesn't have anything on the bottom either. So it's more like a swordfish where it just sticks out on the top, but we really have no idea what it's for. It's fun to speculate though. In their recreation of the way this horn sticking out of the front top lip basically looks, they added a second bump on the horn that they think was made out of keratin, sort of in the position where the front horn on a triceratops is. So like higher up, more like where our nose is, it looks more like, rather than where like a lip would be. And it gives it sort of the appearance of a big bulge on a bridge of a nose or something. It's got this double bump situation going. And they think that there might've been a bump there that would have served as an egg tooth because they say that the horn isn't in the right place for an egg tooth. Because usually when dinosaurs form in an egg or birds, they're kind of curled up with their nose pointed back sort of in towards their body and they can't really get their mouth towards the edge of the egg. But if they had this little bump on the top of their snout rather than in the front of their snout, it might be better placed where if it swung its head back towards the egg, it would crack the egg open. Another unique thing about this embryo is that the eyes are both pointed forward much more so than expected. Typically with these small and larger herbivores as well, they don't have very good stereoscopic vision, meaning depth perception. Usually you have that with predators because they need to hunt things. Oh, I thought predators had binocular vision. Yeah, that's a, another name for it, stereoscopic binocular having depth perception. It all just means that the two eyes are looking at the same thing at once. So that overlap can be useful in getting a little bit more depth information or possibly movement information. But usually herbivores are really just looking out for predators with their eyes because the plants are really easy to find. They don't need a lot of depth perception to get at plants. So they put their eyes on the sides of their head and then they can see predators coming from all different directions. It's usually the way you see it, like sheep and cattle and things today are like that, whereas wolves have the eyes on the front of the head. Again, there aren't any real serious guesses at why they had this binocular vision, but it could be that they were omnivorous as hatchlings. At least that's my random speculation. When you're really small, it's harder to digest plant material because you need that big gut with a long fermentation process. So it would be reasonable if they ate some insects or something and maybe then binocular vision would be helpful. And I saw one guess that maybe it would help them spot camouflaged predators better, but presumably having binocular vision makes it harder to spot predators because they can sneak up on you. So unless I was looking for a specific type of predator that it really needed binocular vision for, that doesn't seem like a great fit. It's really weird. They were very surprised that it has binocular vision. It's not something they expected. It's one of the things though that having a 3D preserved skull really helps with because you can see that structure of how wide the face was, whereas every other embryo they find is smashed and when it's flattened, you have no idea. It's too hard to reconstruct the three-dimensional shape of it. I wonder if that would have changed though if it was fully became fully developed. Yeah, they did talk a little bit about that and maybe even as it grew up, like by the time it was an adult, maybe the eyes were pointed more towards the sides, but as a young little baby sauropod, the binocular vision was more helpful. It's a good point though, because it still has another 25% of its egg time mm -hmm. <laughs> remaining. So maybe it didn't end up in that position exactly. Another interesting thing, there's so much interesting stuff about this find, 
they actually have some of the eggshell that they think was originally surrounding this embryo. And it looks like it's been leached from a lot of its calcium. In other words, the baby might have started absorbing calcium from the eggshell at this point in its development. It's not too big of a deal because the eggshell is really thick. It's about 1.6 to 2 millimeters thick, which is about like an ostrich egg. And it's also about twice as thick as specimens known from the Acamahuevo formation, which is where most of the sauropod embryos have been found in the past. So it's possible that it had a thicker eggshell because it was absorbing some calcium from it. Or maybe lots of sauropods did this and we just haven't seen it because we don't have a lot of examples to look at. But that's another one of those kinds of details that you can get with crazy, powerful <laughs> instruments. Mm -hmm. I should point out, though, that that thicker eggshell has been seen in other sauropod eggshells in other parts of Argentina. So it's not completely unknown. It's not like this is the thickest ever sauropod embryo eggshell or something. One final strange detail about this baby sauropod is that the bones in its skull fused in a different order than other embryos. And it shows that within sauropods, there were different sort of pathways that the babies were developing as embryos. So there's quite a variety, <laughs> more so than we even knew before, in how these dinosaurs developed. Unfortunately, we don't know where exactly this dinosaur came from because we think it was originally found in Argentina around the year 2000 and then got smuggled out to the United States and probably sold. I didn't see anything about it being sold, but eventually it got donated and repatriated back to Argentina. Unfortunately, again, the geochemistry doesn't seem to match any known Argentinian localities, so they can't figure out where the egg might have been. Their best guess seems to be Acamahuevo in Argentina, where a lot of those sauropod embryos came from, but it, it really doesn't match the soil there in its chemistry, so that's not a great fit either. If it is from there, it would be from the late Cretaceous, about 80 million years old, and it's stored nearby in the Museo Municipal Carmen Funes, which is also where the other sauropod embryos that are more squished from Acamahuevo are, and it's also where the Argentinosaurus holotype is, and it looks like they have a pretty good gallery, so I don't know, it might even be on display. Ooh, sounds like a good place to see sauropod specimens. It does, yeah. Argentina, we gotta make a trip there at some point mm -hmm. for your sauropod needs. <laughs> <laughs> I really hope that eventually we find an adult version of the sauropod and it still has that horn. That's my ideal dream, but it, it doesn't seem the most likely. Nobody else was postulating at that, so I don't know. You never know. I mean, no one expected Therizinosaurus or Dinochirus to look the way they do, so <laughs> it's definitely possible. In other news, in Wales, there's footprints that have been found at a beach in Penaf in the Vale of Glamorgan that may be dinosaur footprints. The Natural History Museum is looking to confirm, and this could be the third set of dinosaur tracks. Researchers are looking at the stride pattern and the geological area where the tracks were found, as well as the size and shape of the holes. And they said that they look at what they call squelch marks, which are these rounded rims. And that happens when the animal steps in mud and then the mud rolls up around the foot. Interesting. Squelch marks. I haven't heard that one before. Yeah, I like that term. <laughs> In Virginia, a senior graphics design major, Ling Jiegu, created a velociraptor sculpture that's going to be on permanent display at Radford University Museum of the Earth Sciences. 
Her Velociraptor is a little bit bigger than it would have been in life, but it looks really good. She used a steel frame, aluminum foil, polymer clay, feathers, and replica golden eagle eyes. And she said one of her professors told her that the museum was looking to add a dinosaur sculpture, so she pitched the idea to the director of the museum, George Stevenson. She showed him samples of her work, and he gave her a chance, which is cool. So soon there's going to be a virtual unveiling ceremony and then a contest to name the raptor. Nice. Using eagle eyes on it probably makes it look extra intense. Yeah. It's really pretty. It looks a little dragonish to me. Hmm. Could be the feathers. In San Antonio, Texas, the Witt Museum recently got a $250,000 grant from the Institute of Museums and Library Services to rehouse and conserve their current paleontology and geology collections. And the museum's also going to be recognized as a state and federal repository, so they'll be able to collect fossils on state and federal lands. Oh, cool. Mm -hmm. That's a really big deal for a museum to get that accreditation. Mm -hmm. Now we've got Jurassic World news. If you've been to McDonald's recently, you might have seen the Camp Cretaceous Happy Meals. <laughs> they have four dinosaur toys, T-Rex, Triceratops, Bumpy the Baby Ankylosaurus, oh. and Toro the Carnotaurus. Baby Ankylosaurus? <laughs> yeah. They also have four books that go with the toys. There's horned dinosaurs, ferocious dinosaurs, armored dinosaurs, and big dinosaurs. So armored dinosaurs. Goes with all the toys, yeah. And they have images of the four dinosaur characters. Oh, that's cool. Makes me want to go get a Happy Meal. Yeah, I was thinking about that. I might be too old for Happy Meals. <laughs> Maybe. You can buy the toys separately. I used to work at McDonald's, and it costs almost as much as buying a Happy Meal. But if you're not interested in the Happy Meal, you can just buy the toy. I could see you doing this soon. <laughs> I used to get them all for free when I worked there. I got this fun Yoshi thing where you, you stepped on its flapper and its tongue shot a little baseball up in the air. <laughs> it was really fun. I didn't know that one existed. It's also a dinosaur. That's why I bring it up. Yeah. I forget. It was like part of an activity series. So it was supposed to get you active. So you'd step on that thing. And I think you're supposed to swing a wiffle ball bat at it or something. Hmm. But it was cool because it was Yoshi and his tongue came popping out every time you pressed on the flap. That is your favorite character on Super Smash Brothers. Uh, yeah. Pretty much my favorite Nintendo character, I would say. Mm -hmm. How can you beat a creature that eats something and turns it into an egg? There's no animal that does that because it would be totally pointless. <laughs> it's incredibly enjoyable. And it flies by kicking its legs, too. Yep. It's great. Yep. Yoshi's the best. So some other updates. Uh, this one on Jurassic World Dominion, the movie. So Jeff Goldblum recently shared that there's going to be an action scene with Ian Malcolm, Ellie Sattler, and Alan Grant, and all the characters, with a new dinosaur. And he said in an interview with Insider, quote, the first thing that we shot, it was a scene with me and Laura Dern and Sam Neill. We were, I can't tell you much, but we were all day in a very tight enclosed space. You'll see. It's a mystery you'll solve when you see the movie. The three of us were in a tiny little space and we're being menaced by, I can't even tell you, a surprising <laughs> faction of prehistoric creatures that you've never seen before, end quote. Ooh. Yeah, so there's speculation that the dinosaur is the new pyroraptor. There's an Instagram photo of a maquette or a model. So it might look a little different in the movie compared to that photo, but there's not too much other information about this yet. I believe Pyroraptor is in one of those Jurassic Park games, and in it it's feathered, which would be nice if they added feathers to this one. Oh yeah, it's in Jurassic World Alive, and it has fur-like feathers. Yeah, 
Because I, I keep saying that they should just introduce new dinosaurs and put feathers on those because they continually refuse to update the look of existing dinosaurs in the canon. But you can add new dinosaurs and give them the modern scientific look. So that'd be nice. Dakota Raptor would be a real winner to mm, add. Mm-hmm. They can make their Dakota Raptor the same size as the Velociraptor. <laughs> True. Well, they'd probably make it twice as big. <laughs> Like real-life Allosaurus size. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Monoclinius, which was a request from Tyrant King via our Patreon and Discord. So thank you. It's also sometimes pronounced monoclonius, which is how I always say it, but monoclonius does sound more authentic, I think. Well, we can't ask Cope. It's true. Monoclonius was a ceratopsian that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Montana in the U.S. in the Judith River Formation. It was also found in Alberta, Canada in the Dinosaur Park Formation. Like a lot of dinosaurs, they don't care about national boundaries that won't exist for another (laughs) 65 million years at the least. Yes. Well, this one's also a dubious genus, maybe, and it's a Bone Wars dinosaur. So there's a lot of confusion and debate around Monoclinius and Centrosaurus. Monoclinius was named in 1876 by Edward Drinker Cope. They found fossils with Charles Sternberg in 1876 in Shoto County, Montana, about 100 miles or 150 kilometers from the site of Battle of the Little Bighorn, which had happened that June. 
So it was found in different locations. They found most elements, only the feet were missing completely. And they found including the base of the nasal horn, part of the skull frill, brow horns, vertebrae, sacrum, shoulder girdle, thigh bones, shin bone, fibula, parts of the forelimb, and more. And then from what I found, Cope described and named this find two weeks after leaving Montana in October of 1876. So that fits in with the Bone Wars narrative. <laughs> Talk about rushing to publish. Mm-hmm. At the time, Ceratopsians were not yet a distinct group, so Cope didn't know much about the fossils that he'd found. Like, he wasn't familiar with the nasal horn or the brow horns, and he thought that the frail was part of the breastbone. <laughs> so Cope initially thought Monoclinius was a hadrosaur. And then Marsh, Othniel Charles Marsh, described Triceratops in 1889. So Cope looked at Monoclinius and determined that Triceratops, Monoclinius, and Agathamus were all part of a similar group of dinosaurs. And interestingly, and probably not surprisingly, Cope had also named Agathamus. Cope wrote in 1889 in the Horned Dinosauria of the Laramie about one of the most complete skeletons in his collection, which was Monoclinius crassus, the type species. And I think this shows some evidence of what it was like during the Bone Wars and the rivalry between Cope and Marsh. So Cope wrote, quote, This family is called by Marsh the Ceratopsidae, but as it is not certain that Ceratops, Marsh is distinct from one of the genera previously named, I shall call it the Agathalmantidae, from the longest known genus, Agathamus. That's a terrible name, though. I don't care if Ceratops is not a real genus, Agathalmantidae. It's ridiculous. Yeah, but he just <laughs> wanted it to have the name he had given. Yeah. Cope also redescribed Monoclinius as having a large nasal horn and two brow horns over the eyes and a large frill. And then he named three more Monoclinius species Monoclinius recurvicornis, with a recurved horn that is based on a specimen with a short curved nasal horn core. Then there was Monoclinius sphenoceros, which means wedge horned, and that was based on a specimen that Sternberg had found in 1876 on Cow Island in Missouri that had a long nasal horn. And Monoclinius physis, the split one, based on a specimen that Cope thought had a split squamosal, but then it turned out that that squamosal was a pterygoid or jawbone. Cope wrote that Monoclonius sphenoceros had many skeletal parts, including parts of the skull found by Charles H. Sternberg in 1876, that's the one on the Missouri River near Cow Island. He wrote, quote, the Monoclonius Sphenoceros is an animal of large size, exceeding the rhinoceros in height, and the nasal horn is the most formidable weapon I have observed in a reptile, end quote. Oof. Bigger than a rhinoceros is impressive. Mm-hmm. Monoclonius used to have many species assigned to it, I think up to 16. Wow. I lost count after a little while. And now there's only one assigned to it, and that one is dubious. So another instance of a bone wars dinosaur yeah that's pretty extreme 16 species that all later got eliminated yeah yeah so the others have been reassigned to chasmosaurus eoceratops and others after cope and marsh died john bell hatcher worked on finishing cope's ceratopsia monograph and he didn't end up liking cope's methods he found that the type specimen of Monoclonius crassus was actually a composite and therefore a bunch of syntypes, so he chose one of them as a lectotype. Charles H. Sternberg found more specimens, and Lawrence Lamb found Centrosaurus to be distinct from Monoclonius. And then Barnum Brown in 1914 found that there was only one valid species that Cope named, and I specify that Cope named because there were other species named by other scientists that he still found valid. 
and he determined that was Monoclinius crassus. And then he compared Monoclinius with Centrosaurus and found that the two were synonymous. And then he named another species Monoclinius flexus, the curved one, based on a skull found in 1912 with a forward curving nasal horn. And Centrosaurus was named after Monoclinius, that's why Monoclinius stayed. Lawrence Lamb responded to this in 1915 saying that Monoclinius docini, another species, was Brachyceratops, and Monoclinius Sphenoceros was Styracosaurus, and Monoclinius crassus was not distinct enough because the lectotype was too damaged and there was no nasal horn, and he referred Brown's Monoclinius flexus to Centrosaurus apertus. In 1917, Brown named Monoclinius nasicornis with the nose horn, and Monoclinius cutleri based on a skeleton with skin impressions but no skull. Naming a ceratopsian without a skull? What are you doing? <laughs> I guess the skin impressions were enough. Oh, I don't think so. <laughs> so there was obviously a lot of debate around all this, and then Richard Swanlow published Revision of the Ceratopsia in 1933, and he said Centrosaurus was a junior synonym of Monoclinius, but still its own species, so it became Monoclinius apertus instead of Centrosaurus apertus. Charles M. Sternberg, who is Charles H. Sternberg's son, said in 1938 that there were monoclinius types in Alberta. In 1940, he named monoclinius loi in honor of his field assistant, Harold Docker Robinson Lowe, who worked with him during six field seasons. Charles M. Sternberg wrote about monoclinius in 1938 and about how it was distinct from Centrosaurus because of the shape and proportion of its horn cores, whereas again, Brown had thought that Centrosaurus was a synonym of monoclinius. Sternberg wrote, quote, while collecting vertebrate fossils from the uppermost strait of the Belly River series in the southeastern corner of Alberta last summer, my ambition of 20 years was realized in the discovery of two skulls which can be identified as monoclinius. So by the 1990s, there were three theories around monoclinius. One, that monoclinius crassus was valid and it was the same as Centrosaurus apertus and Centrosaurus was a junior synonym. Two, that monoclinius crassus was a nomum dubium and other monoclinius species should be referred to other genera. And three, monoclinius and centrosaurus were both valid and separate taxon. So all the possibilities. <laughs> In 1990, Peter Dodson found that monoclinius and centrosaurus were both valid taxon. But in 1997, Scott Sampson and others found that monoclinius crassus, the lectotype, and referred specimens were nomina dubia because they were all juveniles or subadults and that most centrosaurines had a quote-unquote, monoclinius phase while growing, which is why the specimens were found in many places and lived at many times. In 1998, Peter Dodson and Allison Tamarkin said that the bone structure could be because of pedamorphosis, which is when adults keep juvenile traits, and that's based on the holotype of monoclinius loi having an interparietal bone that was 609 millimeters long and the longest of any known centrosaurine. The second longest one was from an adult specimen, which showed that monoclinius loi was probably not a subadult. In 2006, Michael Ryan found that the holotype of monoclinius loi was a large subadult because an osteoderm on the edge of the frill was starting to develop, and there were skull sutures that weren't closed. And just to recap, Charles M. Sternberg had named monoclinius loi in 1940 based on a large, somewhat flattened skull that had a small, backward, curved nasal horn, and that one was found in Dinosaur Park Formation. Ryan suggested monoclinius loi could be a subadult of Styracosaurus, Achillosaurus, or Ineosaurus. 
Peter Dodson said that Monoclonius loi is, quote, almost certainly a diagnosable species. So, coming back, the type species of Monoclonius is Monoclonius crassus. The genus name means single sprout. And the genus name refers to the way its teeth grew compared to the dinosaur Diclonius, which means double sprout. And Cope had named both of these dinosaurs in the same paper. He had said that Diclonius had two sets of teeth at a time, one that was in use and then a replacement set ready to go, and that Monoclonius had only one set of teeth at a time and then grew replacement teeth after a tooth had fallen out. The tooth he described has been lost, and based on that description, it probably was the tooth of a hadrosaur, not a ceratopsian or centrosaurian, but that's probably how he decided at first it was a hadrosaur. Because to recap, Cope originally thought Monoclonius was a hadrosaur, not a ceratopsian. They didn't know what ceratopsians were. Oh, and the species name Crassus means the fat one. The fat one is not a great species name to have assigned to you. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if it cares. (laughs) It's true. It doesn't. So, of course, being a ceratopsian, Monoclonius was herbivorous. And you can see Monoclonius in Phil Tippett's film Prehistoric Beast. And our fun fact of the day is about horned dinosaurs and a little bit about pronunciation and etymology. So triceratops means three-horned face in Greek. You may already know this. Animals with one horn, however, are sometimes described as monocerotic from the Greek from mono, meaning one, and seros for horn. Although we just learned sometimes the mono can refer to the teeth. That's true. So I guess they could have named monoclonius rather than naming it based on the teeth, monoceros for one-horned. Rhinos and centrosaurians in general are both monocerotic, meaning they have the one horn, as well as that baby sauropod that we talked about earlier. In Latin, one horn is unicornu, anglicized to unicorn. (laughs) So maybe rather than monoclonius, they could have named it uniclonius. They want to go Latin rather than going Greek. Triceratops could have been named Triacornua, or maybe Triacorn, if it was anglicized, which I just think is fantastic. (laughs) Rather than call it Triceratops, calling it a Triacorn. Sounds like food. I guess. You must be hungry. (laughs) As a fun etymology aside, because I really like etymology, like a lot of Greek words, there are C and K versions and pronunciations of these roots. So Caesar is typically thought to have been pronounced Kaiser historically. So that's just a weird thing that most people don't know. Linguists usually say that it was pronounced Julius Kaiser and not Julius Caesar, for example. Hmm. And I might be doing Julius wrong for all I know. Another fun one is in the original Latin, Veni Vidi Vici was probably pronounced Weni Witty Wiki. Oh, that's different. (laughs) Because not only is the C a K, but V's were W's. So All that is to say, pronunciation is very complicated, so don't be pedantic and tell people there's a right way to say things, because there often is not a right way to say things, and it changes over time. As long as you know what animal people are talking about, leave them alone. (laughs) Wrapping up the horns, though, for Saros, the K version is Keras, which is the root of keratin. So Saros is the horn itself, and then keratin is the horn material, but they're both from the same root. And as maybe a helpful tip, if you have trouble with the difference between keratin and collagen and the different things and what they're used in, for keratin, you can think seros, 
like a triceratops and the horn. For collagen, actually, kala comes from the Greek for glue, since it's a major part of connective tissue. Hmm. Yeah. The more you know. Indeed. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss out on any new episodes. And consider joining our community, patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.